0: Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is our podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, sometimes winding of conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. On this week's episode of Worship Local, we're going to nerd out and talk about how the Bible was formed, why we have the books in the Bible that we do, Bible translations, text criticism, and more. If you've ever struggled with trusting the authenticity and integrity Mm. of the Bible, this episode is for you. Mm. We want this episode to cause you to be a ferocious reader, studier, and lover of the Bible, and Mm -hmm. we hope it helps you worship local. My name is Andrew Self. I'm one of the pastors at Frontier Church, and this afternoon I am joined by... My name is Cole, and
1: I am first and foremost a church member at Frontier. Mm. My name is Luke Snowden,
2: and I am also a church member at Frontier. Snowball.
0: Snowden. Snowball. we always, The snowman. We always love it whenever Luke joins us for a podcast. <laughs> Especially, we haven't done a podcast with three people since we got rid of that. What was that guy's name? Yeah. We got rid I can't even those? remember. Oh, yeah. was it Nick? Nick. Flick? Something like oh, that. Oh, Tick Powell.
1: Tick Powell. Yeah, that guy. Or sorry, Tick Towel. Yeah. Tick
2: Towel. <laughs> <laughs> tick Towel.
1: Yeah, it'll be fun. I, I mean, our podcast with you, our Luke, are they're always our lowest rated ones. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. They've <laughs> actually gotten the most positive feedback, yes. especially the one on, um, uh, what was the last one we did? Continuationism
0: versus cessation.
1: Ooh, yeah, I got a lot of good feedback on that yeah. one. There was one before then that I think I got
0: even more good feedback on, though. Uh, it was in our first Peter series, I think. Yeah, do you remember what one that was? I don't it was the no. one you didn't get to preach because of the weather, right? That oh, weather? that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you basically... No, wow. Sabbath. I'm thinking of Sabbath. Oh, yes, yeah, You're one of the Sabbath. Yeah, Sabbath.
1: Which I'm probably going to point people towards in a couple weeks as we look at that yeah. practice sermon series. Yeah.
0: So Luke is one of our scholars and residents here at Frontier Church. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's,
2: that's a shame to the scholars <laughs> it's just in the world. True though, dude. It's just
0: true. <laughs> so uh, guys, as we start our conversation... Um, I just want to hear what's exciting you about the Bible right now. What's what's a passage of Scripture or something that you're learning about Scripture that's uh, fueling your affection for Jesus, right? Because we're going to talk about some uh, some technical things. We're going to talk about some nerdy things. But the reason we're going to talk about those things is because we want people to love the Bible. We want people to see the beauty of the Scriptures because it points us to Jesus. So what's something in the Scriptures right now that is, is man, making your heart burn in you for Jesus? Stone, what do you think? dude? I want to hear from you first. Man, I, you know, it's, this
2: has been burning in me for a long time, and I'm really glad that I'm going to have an opportunity, I think, at the beginning of 2021. You guys got me spotted, I think, to preach on New Creation the first Sunday of 2021.
1: Oh, yeah, you get the New Creation sermon I in the Advent
2: series. I do, so, and I'm stoked about that because I, I have just been fascinated with... Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where God creates man and woman in his image and that he create what's so intriguing to me is that he doesn't just create man, he creates both man and woman. He creates them in relationship reflecting the relationships between the members of the Trinity and their to exist in loving relationship imaging God and his own love for himself and within the Trinity just, just the whole idea that of Looking at creation as it was originally created and seeing the gospel narrative throughout the course of scripture, trying to not just get us back to that creation, but Mm, to improve mm. us, to even improve upon it. Mm -hmm. Right, um, And to have us exist in a better... Situation than even mm-hmm. what Adam and Eve did prior to the fall, and so just reflecting on Eden there is kind of like a typological reality of what's to come mm-hmm. in the new creation. It's just, it's just caught my mind, oh, and man. I just hmm. man, just been. It's so let, been informing. It's been behind everything I've been thinking about the yeah, scripture lately. Awesome. So let me piggyback back off it.
1: that because that's kind of one one like really small thing about the Bible that's just been on my mind lately. That's kind of blown my mind, and this might be like a no duh thing for you guys but it was it was new to me and i'd never noticed this but i was I, i'm right now one of the books i'm reading just for fun is called ravished by beauty it's about how reformed spirituality gives us a good ecology and uh, natural theology and what to think about nature and creation and the author just he notes that and again you guys, like maybe this is a no brainer for you guys but i'd never noticed that in god's no way covenant to noah he includes every living creature in the covenant. Yes, mm-hmm. I had never seen that or thought about that. What What does it mean that God doesn't just include His image bearers in the covenant, but every living creature? So, is that is it is it appropriate to say that God has covenanted with
2: creation itself? Well, when you read Romans chapter eight, and you say that the earth itself is what's the word? groaning, I mean, groaning or in a veil right. for the right. revealing of the sons of God. Yeah, I mean, I think the Earth is waiting for the fulfillment of those covenants, or the the ultimate fulfillment of, mm-hmm. of the covenants yeah. to be rescued from the curse of God. That the God, because God cursed the Earth in Genesis chapter three, right? And so it's anti- the Earth anticipates being fully released from the curse so, and from our sin on the Earth.
1: So is it is it right then for me to say, oh, that that's actually a hint at? Um, a doctrine of new creation, Absolutely. when God covenants with creation in Noah. Absolutely. That blew my mind. I had never thought about that yeah. before. And um, I mean, do you think, it so when I'm out fishing, right, with my son or, uh-huh. or whatever, with a friend, and uh, we're about to leave the fishing hole and they litter, right? They throw a bag of Doritos mm-hmm. on the ground. Is it right for me to say, hey, bro, like God's covenanted with creation. That was a wrong thing that you
2: just did right there. Absolutely. Yeah? I think so. I, I think so, right? I think so. And I think it also makes sense of what's happening with global warming, which, you know, that can upset a lot of people, depending on where you stand on things. <laughs> Already controversial. Let's, let's, push, four aside in. To, let's push aside <laughs> the
1: conversation on canon. Let's just go right here. No, but that, I mean, that just blew yeah. my mind. So yeah. that's just like an example of how, um, it's an example of how like the Bible is f- just filled with ticking time bombs, like these texts yeah. that are in your heart that you think you know, but they're just in your heart going tick, 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 tick. And then one day you bump into it and it just explodes differently to you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, we get so caught up in the Noah part of the covenant that we sometimes don't finish reading the text. And we just, oh, it's just with this dude to start things over. But
1: every living creature. I couldn't believe it. it It's amazing, man. I couldn't believe it. Yeah.
0: So... Those are just a couple little nuggets there of things in the Bible that are making us excited, things that have been in the Bible the whole time that maybe we have not pieced together in its totality, um, but nevertheless, the Bible is still exciting for us, and we want it to be exciting for our church. Um, so so we, had, we started our spiritual practices sermon series a couple of weeks ago. This past Sunday's uh, first practice was on scripture. Um, so in that sermon, inspiration was talked about um heavily, but we we want to cover some other uh, topics when it comes to the practice of scripture because there are lots and lots and lots of questions when it comes to scripture. Why do we have so many translations? Why do we <clears throat> have these books, and the Catholics have those books? Um, what's going on mm-hmm. with all this? it can cause a lot of people to the, to doubt the authenticity and the integrity of the scriptures. And so, with the conversation the three of us are having, we want to invite you into this conversation to give you more faith in the scriptures. God has revealed himself to us in his scriptures. We think it's trustworthy. We believe it's trustworthy. We believe it's good. Yeah. And so, let's just start here, <clears throat> and then work our way out. Why do we have so many translations? We've got ESV, KJV, NASB. Holman, CSB. We've got so many translations. Why? Why do we have all these translations? And it, it, a lot of people will say, because you have so many translations, you can't trust the scriptures. Something is. Everything has gotten lost in throughout this giant game of telephone pictionary throughout his, the Christian history. So, can we trust that the scriptures are still true and good today, despite there being a thousand translations?
2: Oh. There's a lot, well, the the mm-hmm. simple answer to that is yes, you can. <laughs> All right, so definitely, what's your next question? <laughs> definitely, you can trust that. But there are a lot of reasons, you know, when you ask why there are so many translations, there's a lot of reasons. We, For one, we live in a capitalist society, and there's a profit to be made in the sale of Bibles. Wow, as I did much not as, think you were going to bring that up. As That's... much as we don't like to think about wow, that, I can't that is a real that. thing. That's true, yeah. That's a real thing. Crossway has done real well for themselves. They're, they're doing all right with the production of the ESV. <laughs> yeah. That was ballsy, Snowden. I like that. You're but right. though. True. I agree with you. It's yeah. true. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's a reason why there's competition in Bible sales for different types of leather and different types of font and different mm. types of you know, I mean, this is all this is all mm-hmm. driven by capitalism. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. Right. But that is definitely That's... a reason why yeah we have not only the translations we have, but we'll continue to have new translations mm-hmm. because there's profit to be made yep. because people want to read the Bible and ooh, it's new and it's, you know. Something different. And with that so. goat
0: skin hitter, or are you just going to get that regular cow skin? <laughs> Ooh, I got that goat skin, <laughs> bro. I got calf skin. calf
2: skin. Worthy is the calf was <laughs> <of his> slain. <laughs> but uh when it comes down to the more technical reasons why we have different translations in English, that comes down to different translation philosophies. Mm-hmm. And there's two main, but really three different philosophies of translation. And without getting into the real technical language, one is word-for-word translation, Mm -hmm. thought-for-thought translation, and then kind of a hybrid between the two. Mm -hmm. Sure. So your uh, word-for-word translation, traditionally that was your King James Bible. Um, The first Bible really, well, not the first, but one of the first Bibles translated into the english language yeah and um and that was a, a very um, it was it was a great translation of the uh Greek text that they had at the time um when Erasmus was putting that thing down he did an, a remarkable thing and it changed Western civilization and was a remarkable tool for the english language mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. so and that translation philosophy is the same translation philosophy that we use with the ESV. Um, It's doing our best to try and match up. What does this Greek word mean? Let's translate it and put it into English. The problem is, is that even in an attempt to do that, there's a little bit of interpretation that goes on because when Mm -hmm. you try, anybody that knows if they're trying to transliterate from Spanish to English or any other language into English, if you just do straight across the board, It's going to be completely unintelligible, Mm -hmm. right? And the greatest example of that in Bible translations is one of my favorite translations, but it's very difficult to read. It's called the NET, the New English Translation. This was put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. It was a bunch of you know nerds that thought, "Oh, we want the most literal Bible we can find,"
0: and and you can read it, but it's it's clunky. Trying to preach out that bad boy is challenging to get people to follow yeah. along. When it's an excellent text, translation. It's, it's, but good it's for just, studying,
2: but yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, you don't... It's, it's tough read. So, mm-hmm.
1: have you read David Bentley Hart's translation? He uses the same philosophy. Does he? It's very clunky. Yeah. But it's... If, if you have a good handle on uh, an NIV or an ESV translation, it's really fun as a supplemental text. Mm-hmm. Because the clunkiness will shock you into seeing things that you missed with a smoother translation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so... And so there, that's really the kind of the first philosophy. And so your ESV, the David Bentley Hart, the e, the um, King James, New King James, the NASB, great translation. I used that before Piper convinced me to go to ESV. <laughs> Love the NASB. The RSV, mm-hmm. RSV was kind of the com- the first competitor to the King James version. Didn't only took root really in like your Lutheran churches and more liberal mainline Mm -hmm. Protestant churches, but is the root of where the ESV Old Testament came from, which is a a good thing because that was a very good translation of it. Um, But that's just your attempt to match up word for word. Your thought for thought is more, gets more into like, well, what does the author mean behind this word? So there's a little bit more interpretation happening and a little bit closer to paraphrase. The best of all of the Thought for Thought translations are like your NIV. Mm-hmm. The NIV is an yeah. excellent, faithful, reliable, wonderful translation of the scripture um, that is, you know, even among Reformed guys, they'll some will still preach out of it, you know.
0: We still burn those, right, though? So. The not-inspired version <laughs> yeah. the NIV? Yeah. No. No, not we don't. The inspired version. Oh, brother. I know, right? I like My favorite commentaries that. use NIV as their yeah. as the text that they're uh. using. They'll, they'll critique it when they think that the thought for thought isn't helpful. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah. Who was one of the big scholars that worked on the NIV study Bible? Was that D.A. Carson? I think so. Carson worked on that?
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an excellent translation. I think it doesn't get as much respect as it deserves mm-hmm. in the Reformed mm-hmm. community. Because there are a lot of places where a straight word-for-word translation actually muddies the water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it makes it, it convolutes what the author is intending to communicate. So, um, you know, and some of the, the word-for-word translations are starting to do this. Like, just in the, the general use of brother or addressing a group of Christians and only calling them brothers. Yeah, it's confusing. It's confusing because Mm -hmm. the intention of the author, it's clear, not only in the usage in the Bible, but also extra biblical literature, that it includes more than just not just a bunch of dudes. Yeah, Yeah, it's referring to men and women. So I think it's good in those thought for thought translations, they feel a freedom to embellish the language to help get a clearer picture of what the author's intending to communicate. Mm -hmm. But then the more... The more you press into that, the more you get into the um, authors and editors' tr- interpretation right. as well as their translation of the Greek text. So when you go into your New Living Translation, the Message, things of this nature, then you're going to find a more of a paraphrase than an actual translation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, is they're trying to get make clear the thought behind it, right. the words and not worry so much about accuracy of actual words mm-hmm. being used. So what what place does the message have in in a member's life? So I would be very worried if a pastor got up to preach out of the message. <laughs> yeah. I would be happy to have a, pas- a pastor reference it or quote it um, uh, as supplementary, but I would not want to see a pastor um, expositing it. Like the ESV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what
0: Piper says, that's the pastor's job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I,
2: I, think, I think for the average member, if you're doing a Bible, reading the Bible through the year program, message is a great place to go. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you, especially if you've never read the Bible, the message or the New Living Translation, man, that's what, that's the first thing I'm going to hand a new believer just because it's easy to read. The language is accessible. Right. You know, and so I think I would... Those are really helpful tools to get big picture theology, big picture of what's happening in the Scripture.
1: Yeah, it's going to help give you some schema so that you can tackle an NIV or an ESV after that. Because I've had church members ask me about the message, and what I tell them is... It's a terrible translation, and it's a wonderful paraphrase. Yeah. <laughs> so, as a supplement to something like the NIV or the ESV, I think it's wonderful. I get a kick out of it. But yeah, even if you look at Peterson's methodology, like he never intended for it to be a translation that replaced an ESV no. or NIV. Mm-hmm. It, it came out of his desire to interpret and paraphrase Isaiah for his own church. And we know that that you are biased
2: toward him anyway. (laughs) So now
1: that I've defended Peterson,
2: we can
0: continue with the conversation. He's like the only non-reformed theologian that you name on Sunday (laughs) mornings. I know. (laughs) You 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 saw that meme that Casey made, right? Uh. (laughs) Yeah. And so the third uh, methodology for interpreting scripture would be a uh, a synergism of both of those Yeah, kind of a hybrid
2: of both of those and this is where you're going to find the a translation that I really like but I don't use just because, I don't know, I just didn't, it didn't take with me was the Holman Christian Standard Bible mm-hmm. the one that was put out by uh, Broadman Holman, mm-hmm. or is it just Holman now? I don't know.
0: I, I'm not sure because Lifeway bought the rights to yeah. HCSB So
2: it's basically the Southern Baptist Convention Bible Yes <laughs>
0: but, they, but It's a
2: really good translation but they try to do both they yeah. try to be as accurate as possible and then they make they make they're a little bit more liberal than what you're going to find in the ESV committees where they're translating um, and interpreting uh, thoughts behind
0: mm-hmm. what's going on in the author, hmm.
2: which is why I think in the in the CSB do they have I think he does use brothers and sisters. In yeah, that. so they had the
0: HCSB, they axed that, and so that's no longer in print. But the CSB was all yeah a new that came out two or three years ago, I believe. Uh, but yeah, they use brothers and sisters. They what the CS what I like about the CSB is the consistent language it applies so whenever it just says brothers you know that he's addressing a group of men possibly deacons that are being referenced there but if it's he's addressing the whole the author's addressing the whole church and it would say brothers in the ESB it will say brothers and sisters in mm-hmm. the CSB and then also what um, you know like if you read James and the other translations it'll kind of sometimes it'll use biological or sexual languages in certain parts and then not in other parts But the csb keeps a lot of that language consistent which is interesting i whenever that i got a like an advanced copy of that somehow of the csb i really like that one i wish i had that copy of the scriptures when i was in youth ministry because that's a very readable Uh um the literacy level that you have to the reading literacy level you have to be at to read the csb is a lot lower than esv or a lot of the word-for-word translations so a lot of uh, inner city churches are using the CSB for discipleship, so it's really cool to see that.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's yeah, it's a great
0: translation,
2: very usable, mm-hmm. preachable.
0: Yes, yeah. Like, I still prefer to preach out of the ESV, but I really I thought for a while maybe I'll switch it up and use the CSB because I I really like it, but I. Piper sold it to me too long ago. I can't, can't. Everybody in a
1: church has an ESV. Yeah. Every, everybody yeah. has. I mean, one of our preachers a while back was like, hey, can I just preach out of the blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, everybody's got an ESV. Just play ball. Yeah. It's, it is just the excellent ball. standard version. It is. Or um, some would say elect standard version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, You guys. Are, uh, so, I, Luke, I've never wrestled deeply with the question of why are there uh, – it's never been a source of doubt for me. Thinking like, "Oh, there are so many different translations of the Bible. Uh-huh. Can I trust the Bible?" Have you ever wrestled with that as um as a, as, a, as something that
2: caused you doubt? Uh no. Because when early in my faith, I was hit up with some of these historical things right away. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was really ever. It was really ever a big deal. I know the first time I ever encountered Bart Ehrman. Sure. That that was fun to read. F- well, I didn't, I never, re- I honestly, I've never read anything by him. I've only yeah. listened to lectures and debates by him. Okay. And he, he rocked my world pretty good. And it yeah. forced me deeper into the study of text criticism, which we'll get into in a little mm-hmm. bit. But, sure. yeah. But, yeah, that, but that came on later. Um, but, yeah, I know, I, know, you know, for me, but I think the, well, this goes into another reason why there's so many translations is, is I think a lot of people just have a fundamental misunderstanding of how words work and how dictionaries mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People, I think, I know for me, I used to think that dictionaries are like the, um, they're the authority on what words mean and all words must conform right. to it. And that's not what dictionaries are. Dictionaries are more reflective of how people use words Mm -hmm. it doesn't determine the meaning of words it's just a reflection of how people use them and which is a big argument among linguists it is so
1: what you're tapping at is is the argument of is the english language primarily prescriptive or descriptive in its nature yeah and what you're saying is what i agree with which is it's primarily
2: descriptive which is why we need not only the, the number of translations we have now but more in the future but we need more in the future it's yeah. why martin luther needed to put the the uh, the bible in the germanic language mm-hmm. in the 1500s and why bibles have been reproduced in every language that they have been put in over and over and over again because we, we want the people to understand the Bible in their own tongue as clearly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's good that we have it's not a it's not a negative thing. No. It's a good thing that we right. have this many Bibles because if you sit down to read a King James Version and you've never encountered that before, you are going it's like reading a dead language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's literally like reading a dead language. And you can access some of it as an English speaker, but Right. You're going to be lost if you try to read that yeah. thing without Dude. any knowledge of like it. Yeah. <laughs> words are not numbers, man. It's not data.
1: No. Like, the Language is living and breathing and transforming. And God willing, in the future, we'll have a translation of Psalm 16 that describes God as the dopest dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm kidding. <laughs> is that what you <laughs> think? <No. before? laughs> but even that word, you can see the way that language yeah. evolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see why our translations need to continue to evolve in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With me, I kind of struggled with that a little bit when I was growing up just because um, of family who is in really fundamentalist Baptist church realm. um, And then me not being in that church realm directly with my immediate family. Uh, Definitely like very conservative Baptist churches that I grew up in. But when I go back to my grandpa's church and I go to Sunday school and I've got my HCSB and I crack it open to read and the, Sunday school teacher looks at me and says, like, "What? What are you reading over there, boy?" So the Bible. He's like, "We read God's Bible in here." He was referencing the King James Version. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I so that kind of it wasn't, didn't like cause turmoil or like a crisis of faith, but I just like it caused in me at a very young age to be like, "Why do we have all these translations?" Yeah, Can I? Yeah. Because it sounds different in this one than this one. Do they mean the same thing? Mm. Like, why do I read this word in the KJV, but I'm not allowed to say that word in everyday conversation in my house? Mm. Right? Yeah. So just yeah. so the the way that words the the way that people use them has changed. It, it it really is helpful and necessary for us to to have translations that that hold the integrity of scriptures, but I'll, but make it understandable for us. Yes. And so that's why Bible study is so important, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But so, if you're just reading the Bible, that's good. You need to do that constantly and consistently. But Bible study really does help you make sense of the Bible. It can You can look at five different translations and see them maybe structure the sentence differently, put in a comma here but not over here, uh, use this word instead of that word, and you, you have to come to terms with, okay, what does this actually mean? They're all saying the same thing in different ways, but what does this actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's a little... Uh, Little overview of all the translations. So like what Luke said, the short answer is yes, you can trust the scriptures, even though there are a thousand different translations. They still are trustworthy. Some are better than others, and some you should use for one thing and not for the other thing. Um, so how do we, first, how do we get all the books that we have in our Bible? So we've got, as Protestants, we have 66 books that make up our Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. How did we get these books and why were other books excluded in the in the protestant bible Or even if you look back in the early church as they began to form um, a collection of the scriptures why did why did it come about the way that it did was it just some dudes who were like this is in this is out i like this one because it's really poetic but this one over here is just weird we're not gonna let that one in how did we get the scriptures that we have
2: uh well first i think before we go into the answer I think it's important to say, if you have an ESV study Bible, and I think a lot of people in our church do, and this is something that you have a question about, I think it's on 2577 or something like that, page 2577, toward the back of the ESV study Bible, there are several great articles that address these questions. How do we Mm -hmm. get the Bible, Mm -hmm. and how do we trust the Bible? What about the New Testament manuscripts, Old Testament manuscripts? They have great articles in your study Bible on that. If you don't have an ESV study Bible, I think some of them do have articles like this, but look and see if you do, because you might already have a resource at home that you can read mm-hmm. later for a little bit more in-depth study on this. Yeah,
0: or if you have a systematic theology book, yeah. it's for sure going to have probably in the first couple of chapters yeah. Yeah. on yeah. the canon of Scripture. Mm-hmm. But the the I'll try to give a short answer to this.
2: Um, the early church, from its beginning, was using and circulating the letters of Paul and the Gospels among one another, and the church had developed a sort of unspoken cons- consensus. It wasn't codified. There was It's not like the Apostle Paul sat down and said, okay, these are the letters, these are the books we're going to use. The, the the early church accepted the all the Old Testament books that the Jews accepted as authoritative. The Jew, the Christians adopted them, mm-hmm. and then there was circulated among the churches the letters of Paul. And we know this Second uh, Peter chapter three verse sixteen. You see this right away, right? <laughs> yeah. In Second Peter chapter three verse sixteen, the uh, Peter writes and says, "Hey, you know Paul's letters are going around, and and, and he refers to Paul's letters as Scripture, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. crazy." So this yeah. is happening in the time of the New Testament, mm-hmm. before the apostles had died. Their writings were already being viewed and treated as scripture.
1: Can I can I read that really quickly? Yeah, Second Peter it. three. Yeah. So Peter says, "And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them." Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures.
2: Yes. That's great, man. Isn't Mm. it awesome that even in the Bible, the New Testament leaders are already recognizing, hey, we've got scripture here. And I mean, that's huge evidence. And there's other texts like that, that that we can look at. But that's, that's what's going on in the early church. These letters are going around different churches, and different churches are benefiting from them, studying them. They're preaching them. They're teaching them. Yeah, yeah. And then early in the church, in about, I think, 110, you have Ignatius uh, quoting and um, identifying gospels and other and other texts, I think he recognizes all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Mm -hmm. in 110
0: AD, Hmm. right? That's crazy.
2: And we have these writings where he's talking about them. Polycarp is talking about them, talking about the church in Philippi. We have have other uh, texts from other early church fathers that are doing this in the first hundred years. When you come into the uh, 300s, the church has gone along and and has not had a reason, essentially, to say, hey, these are the books that we recognize as authoritative. But all of these New Testament letters and gospels were in circulation among the churches, and they were using them. And what happened was, as you might imagine, heresy a heretic rises up yeah. and says, and his, dude, his name is Martian, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. And he says, "You know what? The God of the Bible in the Old Testament—he's a jerk." This is how he said it, right? <laughs> in his exact words. In his yeah. exact words, he's a real jerk. He's angry. He's wrathful. And that we—I don't want anything to do with that. But Jesus, you know, he's—he's he's a different God, and he's loving. And he's wonderful. He's the kind so, of God I can get a yeah, drink with. Yeah, we can get together and, yeah, smoke some pot together and, you know, and <laughs> whatever. I don't know what he said. <laughs> <Yeah>. Imputing <laughs> something horrible to, to Martian. <laughs> well, he was a heretic. He so. was a heretic. So. Yeah, so throw him under the bus. <laughs> but no, Martian's like, you know, Jesus is love. And so what he did was he was he was rising up in, in um, popularity in the church Teaching these kinds of things and saying we don't, we need to get rid of the Old Testament and you know. This part of this gospel, this entire letter, and this entire gospel, we need to just X most of it. So he only had like certain sections of Luke and a few you know, letters and said basically the rest of it is no good, you know, especially the letter of the Hebrews, get rid of that, you know. So
0: he was, was saying more liberal than Jefferson was. Yeah, he was like yeah, yeah, cutting seriously. and
2: pasting the Bible to fit his narrative of what he wanted God to be. And so as he was rising in popularity, especially in North Africa, um, the church had to respond to this mm-hmm. because he was influencing and affecting the church. And so the church had to, was essentially forced to come together and say, okay, what, do, what are we going to say is authoritative? So the church, it's really important to understand this because when you hear a skeptic or an unbeliever or whatever kind of person that doesn't accept the Bible as authoritative... What they're going to do is they're going to say the church got together in the council of Carthage in the three, late 300s and they, and they came up with the Bible. They just randomly picked a bunch of books and said, this is it. And it was a political power play at that time. And they established it at that time in that way. And that, that is not what happened. What happened was the churches were already using all these texts and you had a dude coming in questioning that publicly and popularly, and so the church had to make a determination, okay, what are we going to recognize as authoritative? And basically all they did was honor the texts that were already being treated that way mm-hmm. in the churches. That's all they did. And there were certain criteria they used to make that determination, but you find the first full listing of all the, was it 26 or 27 books? I, I, the number's escaping me right now. Of the New Testament is there at the Council of Carthage. I think you also get got a list from Ignatius not Ignatius, sorry. Tertullian. Tertullian mm, has a list yeah, yeah, yeah. that is almost complete in the in the two hundreds. But you get the full, like codified, this is the acceptable list in uh in the year uh three ninety six, I believe, the third council of Carthage. And so that's kind of where where it comes from. They recognize the old testament and all the books of the New Testament. There were some books that were contested. Um, most all of them were in, were unanimously and without question mm-hmm. taken. All four Gospels were mm-hmm. taken in. The, yeah. the book of Hebrews was a challenge because there's no identified author in it. And um, that one was a little bit of a challenge, although it was accepted pretty easily among the church. Um, the book of James, because of its apparent... Contradiction to Paul's teaching was under a little bit of dispute because of the doctrine of of justification by faith alone, and James yeah, saying that yeah. faith without works is dead. You know, so that that was a little bit of a debate. Uh, the letters of Second and Third John, because they're so short, they were like, "Is this really useful for the church?" <laughs> and the Book of Revelation. Well, the way Craig Blomberg. <clears throat> Shout out to Stephen Kerr and his love of <laughs> Craig Blomberg from Denver, <laughs> Denver Seminary. Craig, Bo- Craig Blomberg in a, a, a lecture on this. I'll never forget what he said. He's like he's, he said, nobody knows what to do with the Book of Revelation, not even the early church. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was just like, oh, what, what do we do with this? Do we keep this in because this is kind of crazy? And so the church, you know they wrestled with some of these books. There were some other books that were on the table, but never really fully accepted among all the churches, those, and those books um, were recognized by the body of believers at that time as edifying and helpful, but we're not going to make them authoritative. And, the, right, and those, yeah. if you, if you do any reading into this, um, we would call them the new Testament apocrypha, which we, if, I don't know if we want to go into the apocrypha or not, but we, they're just apocryphal writings called the shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, A couple others they are helpful, good writings that are worth your time to look up and read, which you can find anywhere on the internet for free, um, but are not entirely fitting with the Mm -hmm. rest of the New Testament books and not considered authoritative.
1: So how how did they determine that New Testament apocrypha as not
2: authoritative? A lot of it had to do with the first primary thing was the way the churches use the text. They were looking at the churches and what's the consensus in the churches Is the big, it's the first big question. The other thing is apostolic authority. But the Didache, for example, was written traditionally by the apostles. So that had the apostolic authority. The other thing had to do with content and its fittingness with the rest of what's going on in the text. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think with the Didache, it wasn't as widely distributed. And there were some content issues that weren't, didn't line up as much. You'll find some contradictions in the Didache compared to the scripture.
0: Like it goes into how to do baptisms. Yeah. You got to do it in a running and flowing stream. And if you can't do that, then go here. And if you can't do that, then go here. And if you can't do any of those things, then okay, just whatever. Which
2: is helpful that there's a little bit of ambiguity, ambiguity in how to do baptisms in the new Testament, given the various circumstances in which the gospel is going to go out throughout the world. Yeah.
0: And the dedicate is also extremely anti-abortion, which is interesting. It was like explicit in the dedicate of the protection of unborn life. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's an example of one of the first rules of lives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That'd be a helpful way to think about it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But they're great writings, mm-hmm. and I think they should be used and and thought about, especially among church leaders um, and for the average layman. you know, it's easily accessible today. Uh-huh. You can go and read it. And they're short; they don't take a long time to read.
0: Yeah, and the and it's interesting. Like you've got in the New Testament, you've got um, authors quoting Second Temple Jewish literature, and that's mm-hmm. not included using it and sourcing material from it, whether it's first Enoch or uh, the wisdom of Job, they're using these things to prove their point and to communicate what they want to communicate. But the church fathers and those churches, um, they didn't accept those as authoritative. So it's really interesting. It's like, or Poly- Polycarp, did he write the letter to the Philippians? Mm-hmm. So he, he had an epistle that didn't get accepted, but Paul's letter to his epistle to the church of Philippi, it was accepted. So it's interesting to see how they went about that process and I, to me, that's a lot more, that, that convinces me to trust the scriptures a lot more than somebody who just says, this is the book that we have been given and we received it, you have to take it. But it was evidence of God's spirit and God's providence at work in, in the church and something not coming out of left field and be like, hey guys, we just found this, we've got to use it. But like, yeah. Well,
2: yeah, these writings essentially in the church were bearing the fruit of the reality of what they were. Mm-hmm. These these writings the Holy Spirit was using them to grow the church spiritually that is, to grow them spiritually, to train them in righteousness as we learned this last week. Mm-hmm. And and not only that, when when the Council of Carthage was meeting, gnosticism, the main heresy that plagued the early church was in its full height at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of rival texts. Um, to the scriptures that were that bad actors were trying to dupe people into submitting to Mm -hmm. that were full of gnostic heresy in an attempt to corrupt the church so everyone knows about this even if they don't realize it if you were alive and paid any attention to anything that dan brown did 20 years was it 20 years ago already that was <laughs> it. Can't be twenty years ago. It Doesn't feel like it. But the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown, he built his story. Well, first of all, he falsified what happened in church history and the, yes. the completion of the canon. But the other thing he did was he used. I believe it was was it the Gospel of Thomas? Yes. I think he used the Gospel of Thomas as the basis for his book, and. This is what we, there's the big word for this in theological circles is called pseudepigraph, pseudepigrapha. Mm-hmm. Meaning, pseudo, meaning Taking not. a name. Epigrapha, meaning like autograph or signature, meaning it's a false signature. It's a, it's a fraudulent book mm-hmm. that was supposed to be written by Thomas, right. who put his fingers in Jesus' wounds, um, but it was written by someone who fraud was forging his his name and was teaching gnostic heresy mm-hmm. through that name and so there were, at the time when the new te- when the new church was putting the uh, together the canon in the 300s they were essentially weeding out and and helping the church recognize okay these other writings they're not authoritative you don't have to pay attention to them Because there were, there's a, and if you go online and look, there's a lot, there's a body of work out there. A ton of, like, forgeries. And you can understand why people would want to do that, bad actors anyway. Yeah. Why they would want to do it, because they would gain power, they would gain influence, and change, and if they really wanted their Gnostic doctrine to go through. This is how they're going to do it. They can put an apostle's name behind yep. it, and they can go in and wield that around on unsuspecting people. Uh-huh. And when there's no authoritative list of here's the canon, they don't have, you know, how are they to combat these false right. teachers, um, right?
0: If, yeah, if it came from Thomas, then we got to trust it. Yeah, we
2: got it. We got to take it. Which
0: shows the process of, okay, what we're seeing here does not match up with anything else that we have read that's in these letters that are widely accepted and widely used. And it we have no other none of the other apostles affirm these writings so we can't trust it it doesn't meet it doesn't meet the the universality of of the text it doesn't meet the apostolic authority or yeah. an, the power of of the text so those criterions that they already had that they used the the council it didn't meet any of those yeah. so they're not going to put that thing in here yeah and so the, what's
2: great is when you do a little bit of research into what happened at these councils how quickly and easily all of these pseudepigraphal texts were just disregarded because they were so obviously fraudulent mm-hmm. you know so yeah i mean that that it's it's helpful when you read that because for me when i look at this and you do a little bit of history, his, study into the history of it it helps reveal for me how reliable the books of the bible that we have are and there's still you know there are still questions and there's still concerns second peter Feels weird when you read it right after First Peter. It seems like someone different stepped onto the stage. And when you, you know, you read the Book of James, there are people that struggle. I mean, even Luther early oh, yeah, on in his ministry, yeah, struggled with with James. And so there there are still questions and concerns. We still don't know who wrote Hebrews. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say Paul, others Luke, Apollos. We don't. We're not sure. So there's still questions we have
0: mm-hmm.
2: that are not answered, but. But the evidence from history, especially when you see Peter quoting Paul and the early church in the first less than a hundred years after Jesus died, you know, referencing these things in early church. I mean, it's to me, it's pretty shut, shut and closed, open and shut case. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it strengthens the argument for me of the integrity and authenticity of the Scripture, and because this is the way that the church handled difficult issues as well. We see in Acts, the Council of Jerusalem or the Apostolic Council, mm-hmm. what do we do in this situation when it comes to circumcision? What do we do with Jews and Gentiles who are now a part of the same family? Yeah. How do we, how do we come to terms with things? And so it wasn't them just like, this is my preference, so we're going to do it this way, or I like this book, so we're putting that in here. They yeah. wrestled with these things and <laughs> had conversations and would study. Their, we have all these documented councils in church history. This was the normative practice for them to make big decisions. Um so these are godly followers of Jesus who were seeking the Spirit's help and developing a framework and a grid to bring in what was acceptable and to keep out what was not acceptable. Mm-hmm. So that so the word canon, uh, let's just divine, define that real quick, because there's probably some people who grew up in church and maybe did Bible drill like me, and you only use the canon of Scripture. Bible too. drill! <sighs> I still need to show you the trophies I have from Bible Drill. Anyway, we got to get a picture of those. What what do we mean when we say the canon of scripture? The church needs
1: to know we got an almost state champion. I'll flex on all
0: of you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Almost state champion. Um, What do we mean by canon?
0: Yeah, what does that word mean?
2: Well, the word was actually developed then at the Third Council of Carthage, and it just meant like Mm. this is the rule of our faith, this is the standard of belief and faith. And so, um, they just set up this. When when they determined what books were going to be part of the canon, basically it was saying, "This is it. We're not adding any more, and we're not subtracting.
0: Mm-hmm. This is the official
2: rule and standard of our faith."
0: So that's, it's yeah, it's helpful. It's it's the standard by which we judge things. Yep. Where this is it's informative and authoritative in our life. This is what informs us of how we live godly and, uh, and pleasing lives unto Christ. Um, so that's what we mean when we say the canon of Scripture, uh, that it's the 66 books that we have from Genesis to Revelation. It's what we use to, to live out our lives as Christ. This is what we run to when we seek the will of God in our lives for how we are to interact with him and relate to him and interact and relate with the church and to the onlooking world. This is, this is our text that we use to rule our lives you can't just come to me and say, hey, uh, this is what you have to do as a Christian. And if it, if you tell me that, mm-hmm. I'm going to look into the scriptures and say, is this in the scriptures? Is this biblical? You told me just to divorce my wife because I had a fight with her. I don't think that's in the Bible. I don't think that's a, that's a that justifies me forsaking my wife and my children. That's why we have the scriptures, not only to edify us, but also to to rebuke false teachings, to rebuke heretics, to keep wolves out of the church. That's why we have the scriptures, and so that's why we are a church that is founded on the scriptures. Uh, We love other good theologians. We love looking at reading Second Temple Jewish literature. We like reading, well, Cole's got some Rob Bell over here. (laughs) Guys outside of our camp. (laughs) Yeah, we, we like to read those things, but for us, they are not authoritative. I don't look to John Piper and say, John, tell me how to live my life. I want to look into the scriptures because Piper does not have authority um, over my life. Christ does, and his rule and reign is is shown to me in the scriptures. So you mentioned this earlier, Luke. You mentioned text criticism. Yes. What is text criticism? Just give me a definition, and then maybe what are some examples of that? What are some some of the pitfalls of text criticism, and what are some of the things that are helpful that come out of text criticism?
2: So, I love text criticism. I, I'm a fan of it. Most people think it's dry and boring, and some people think it's just really confusing and don't want to waste their time with it. Um, for mm-hmm. me, I, this is something that I,
0: I really enjoy. That's why you're our scholar in residence. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So,
2: text criticism an- tries to answer this question We don't have the original autographs. Of the New Testament, so what text criticism asks is, how can we get as close to the autographs as we can possibly get? Mm -hmm. What in the text that we have now uh, could possibly be an error or not part of the original autographs? And what do in our text that we have now? Can how can we improve what we have to more accurately reflect? The original writings of the apostles um, in the New Testament. That sounds like a really scary question to people. <laughs> it is. Also, yeah, a, yeah. it's also a reason why skeptics love text criticism. Mm-hmm. People who are atheists, people who um, don't accept the authority and inspiration of the Scripture, they love this question, and that's why that field is primarily populated in most. Um, Academic institutions by not people who aren't evangelical, um, but within the evangelical world, there are lots of very faithful scholars doing text critical work, and their work is freaking awesome, and I mm. love it. I think it's great, and for mm-hmm. me, the study, this study of this stuff, has has boosted and grounded me in great confidence in the text that we have. Is so ridiculously reliable that we should be very very happy mm-hmm. yeah, with what yeah. we have. Yeah, yeah. Tell we, we should be stoked that we get that we have as reliable a text as we do, for given how old it is. Yeah, and given that it comes out of a dead language, it's it's amazing that we have what we have. Yes.
0: You want an example? Give me an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because there's like so this you going to be fascinating. So on one end of the spectrum, who's definitely not in that evangelical camp of text criticism, you got you got like Pete Enns, who is trying to reshape the Christian faith based on his particular opinions on the scriptures. Yes. You li- don't listen to one of his podcasts before you preach. I did that once, and I was like, sit me down a thousand rabbit trails, and that was yeah, quite interesting. But so here's a classic. Here's a classic thing
2: um, that everybody has in their Bible um, that is a result, a posi- I think it's a positive result of text criticism. But if you see this and you don't understand where it's coming from and what's happening, it could be disturbing to you. So everyone in John chapter... <laughs> i <I'm> excited. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Um, Stand for the I'll reading. Give you a a chance to turn there. John chapter 8, at the very beginning of John chapter 8, above the big eight and the phrase, the woman caught in adultery, Mm -hmm. any good Bible will have either a footnote, an asterisk, or a bracketed section like mine does in my ESV study Bible above that. And it says the following. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753, through 8, 11. Now, what in the world does that mean? Okay? That's the question. <laughs> mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, if we look... There's a couple different ways to approach this, so I'm going to take the long way. Sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. You mean the Luke way? The Luke way. Okay. Well, that's foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have... Copies of the text of Scripture dating all the way back into the 100s. So we don't have any text, any copies, or any fragments of text earlier than 100 AD. Okay, the earliest text that we have, and the last I looked, the number from year 100 to year 200 of just copies of Scripture text that we have, is, I think, four copies. None of them are complete of the New Testament. There are, A couple of them are fragments, a couple of them are whole sections. Um, as you move through the centuries, the number of texts up to the 13th century grows exponentially. So you look in the 200s to the 300s, the 3rd century, you have an explosion of texts. I have a graphic for it. I actually put together a slideshow on it, but I'm, I'm not going to break it out right now. But, um, but what's really cool is is that when you when you look at this, there are an increasing number of texts throughout the centuries. When you get to the 13th century, by the time you get there, you have more than 25,000 texts. With modern day technology, we are able to upload all of these texts into programs Hmm. and then they compare and contrast the content of all of those texts and the attempt here with text criticism is how do we how do we have know that what we're reading is reliable if we have something from the 100s that says this what does the text in the 1300s say what does the text in the eight eight hundred say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So that's that's the big question, and what is absolutely stunning is freaks me out just to think about it. Is how incredibly reliable what we have in the eighth and ninth, tenth and eleventh, and twelfth centuries is compared to the earliest manuscripts that we have. Mm-hmm. But there are differences. There are differences, and the differences that exist. Between what we have in the 2nd century versus the 13th century are what we call textual variants. And that, what that means is, is it varies. What we have doesn't match 100%. Mm-hmm. And so the work of text criticism says, okay, what happened? How do we understand this difference? Does this difference matter? What's great about this is, is um, Bart Ehrman, who's a, who's a skeptic, he's, mm-hmm. not a, he's not an evangelical Christian, he looks at this and he says, yeah, you can't trust your Bible at all. We have and copies of copies of copies. And he says, and what he says is on the surface 100% true. He says there are more variants in the scripture over the years than there are words in the Bible. And he's right. Mm-hmm. There's over 400,000 variants between the earliest manuscripts we have and the manuscripts um, that we have down the road. But, and there's a big but, if you don't press beyond that, you'll be, you'll be just like totally discouraged because mm-hmm. you'll think, oh my gosh, there are so many variants. How do I trust anything in the Bible? But when you look into what they are, over 98% of them, well over 98% of them are, there's not a, in this text, there's a comma. In this one, it's either not there or it's in a different place. Oh, the word order is switched. So with the person copying it switched up the word order, which in Greek mm-hmm. doesn't do anything to the meaning of a word, like it right. does in English. Right. Um, or there's um, a word will get dropped out. Like they'll just drop out an article, or they'll drop out, you know, some other part of speech that just won't exist. Or they'll put in the wrong form of a word. And these are obvious, simple, obvious just scribal errors that occur. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll even, like, they didn't have coffee cups and coffee (laughs) mugs back then, Mm -hmm. but the equivalent of, like, setting a coffee mug on a manuscript and there being a coffee stain on the manuscript from, like, a pen that fell on it, that will be considered a variant, too. Oh, wow. So, it includes every Mm -hmm. single kind of difference that exists from grammar punctuation to markings on the page to word difference that list conclu- includes every single one of those differences, and like I said, that makes up ninety-eight or so percent of all the variants, and none of them have any me- any, any 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 ability to affect the actual meaning of the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, however, some differences, and one of those differences is. The copies of the scripture that we have, the Greek texts that we used, especially for like the King James Version, were much later Greek texts. So when Erasmus was translating from the Greek to do the King James Version, that text that he used in the 1600s was a much older Greek text than what we use today to translate our Bibles. Mm -hmm. So when we compare those... And we say, oh, Erasmus's King James Version includes John chapter 7, 53 through verses 8, verse 11. When we look further back in history, that text isn't there. And what happens is this is probably, this section was probably a part of the oral tradition of the early church yeah. that was in scribal notes. And what we see happening a lot of times is scribes will make notes in the margins of their texts, okay, and eventually those notes get incorporated into the text itself, okay, and we can watch that move happen over centuries. And so that's probably what happened with this section of text. Now, what does that mean for the Christian as you're reading this text? Does that mean you can't trust John 7.53 through 8.11? Well, it raises a question mark over that section. It's not in the earliest texts. It's not what the early church would have recognized as authoritative. So for me personally, I'm not going to preach that. I don't think it's hmm. bad. I don't think a Christian's going to go wrong reading it. I think it teaches great truth. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I would treat it like I would treat the Didache or <clears throat> Shepherd of Hermas. I think it's good, but it's important for us as Christians to understand when we talk about biblical inspiration and authority that we aren't talking about the 2020 version of the ESV, we're talking about the original autographs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we want to get as close to that as we can. And that clearly was not a part of the original autographs because there's plenty of text evidence to show that it wasn't incorporated. It was incorporated into the text much longer. There's another example of this. Um, we just preached through first John and the church is very lucky that um, there was a chain. I think Cole extended the sermon series by a week. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the church was really lucky. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone in the church should be thanking God that I did not preach 1 John chapter 5. Um <laughs> my small group, all of them should they get an it, extra though, crown hey. in heaven because I puked this all <laughs> over them in small group. <laughs> Someone like you. Yeah,
0: uh,
1: um the Holy Trinity one? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So for this is a this is a really classic one. So your King James only people there's a reason why they are King James only. You know, they, they believe the King James Version is the only truly inspired, authorized authorized version for the English language. And part of the reason for that is because when they read 1 John chapter 5, I think it's verse 7,
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the ESV, if you look at your ESV, it just says, for there are three that testify. If you read a King James Version, that sentence is much longer. Mm-hmm. Are you looking it up right now? I don't have a King James in front of me. But if you look at a King James version of that text, it's going to say, for there are three that testify, and it goes through each member of the Trinity and basically says these three are, and these are one. And you can imagine, you can imagine for someone who loves the King James version, whose desires to see the doctrine of the Trinity f- found explicitly in Scripture, like this is like really exciting because you've got a text that you can point to right you're not just limited to the baptism of jesus or something mm-hmm. right but you got a text that makes it explicit and so giving that up is is hard but what it's, this text is actually called in among scholars it's called the joanine comma and basically the earliest texts don't have it in it and when you read um when you read the earliest text, it just says there are three that testify. Erasmus, in the text that he used to translate the King James Version, it had that in it. And it was one of those scribal notes that was in the margin that eventually made it into the text. What's great about text criticism is it keeps us honest as Christians. It, it forces us to take scholarship seriously. And it forces us to be humble about our approach to the text and not be arrogant in it mm-hmm. and not be desperate to try to prove our pet doctrines. <laughs> and it forces us to say, okay, what what are we how can we get as close as we can to the original autographs? And I think that's a great thing to do. And when we look at it, it helps us moderate and and approach things mm-hmm. more effectively. And the ESV, I don't even think it has a note. Maybe in the study bible it's got a note on what's there, but yes, it does actually. Um but mo- a lot of bibles don't even put a note anymore on that verse because it's mm-hmm. just so obviously not there in the
0: earliest manuscripts so yeah 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 that's an interesting one man yeah and is not that, that john 8 passage don't some manuscripts put that after luke 21 i believe there are, there's significant manuscripts that put it after luke 21 i believe which is interesting cuz that's right before christ uh, crucifixion.
2: Yeah. There's Mark 16 is one where that everyone is going to have, everyone will have in Mark 16, uh, the last oh, yeah. chapter of Mark.
0: Yeah. At least it's some interesting places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does.
2: <laughs> yeah. Mark, Mark is a, yeah. One
0: that does that. I'm not, I, there probably is one in Luke. I, I don't remember. Well, I was saying that, the, uh, in jo- uh, for that John eight or seven fifty three through eight text, some manuscripts place that narrative, um, after Luke 21, verse 38, or something like that, right before the plot to kill Jesus comes up. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. There's not a ton of them, but I, I, as I read that um, passage before, you know, see the brackets in the notes, it, it says that some manuscripts place this narrative. So it's not in that, it's not in John, but it's in Luke and other places. Yeah. So, which is really interesting. Just throws another, another wild card into the party. But the, uh, and the thing that you
2: have to keep in perspective with this, is even with the Joannine comma that we saw in 1 John 5, or the text in Luke, or the text at the end of Mark, all of these are good, edifying things. Like, there's nothing theologically wrong with what that addition to 1 John 5, 7. Nothing
1: contradictory.
2: No. It's all consistent with everything else that we read about Jesus, everything we read in the scripture. So... The thing with text criticism, for me, what it does is as I read these things and as I learn about these things, it just causes me to say, holy cow, how lucky are we that our our scripture is so
0: dang reliable. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not like, and Jesus uh, killed a dude for no reason. Yeah, no, there's none of that. None of that. Yeah. So, l- as we as we wrap up this conversation, which I'm really enjoying and learning things, and it makes me want to read the scriptures and study the scriptures more. I'm going to go back and re-listen to this podcast, which I rarely do after recording them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what are some, we want our people to be readers of the scripture. Yes, we want people to memorize scripture, but we want our people to be students and studiers of the scripture. Mm-hmm. So, what are some helpful tools in your own personal lives for you to to be good students of the Scripture, to dig into those textual variants, to dig into those confusing passages of Scripture, to make sense of what does it mean that this New Testament author quotes this passage from Ezekiel? What are, what are tools that you guys use, and you would point an everyday church member to, to use to enrich their understanding of the Scriptures?
2: Uh, first thing would be get a study Bible. The mm-hmm. ESV study Bible, Reformation study Bible. Um, there's a lot of excellent study Bibles. It, that if you're just a layperson and you don't want to go out and read a 20 page scholarly article from some esoteric journal, then that would be where I would start. <laughs> that that would definitely be where I would start. Your study Bible yeah, yeah. will have articles, will have great introductions, notes on most of the verses throughout the Bible, um, charts, pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that is for you to dig into all this stuff, yeah. and it will it will help you. Uh, learn that so just mm-hmm.
0: use a study bible yeah, yeah. some people are afraid to study bibles for some reason that i've encountered because they feel like it muddies the text and it's like well this guy says this but i don't agree with that what does that mean so obviously with any study bible you're going to have notes and comments from a particular theologian mm-hmm. or pastor just mm-hmm. as you would any commentary yeah. and all of us here we're on the preaching theme at frontier we use commentaries we use study bibles and we don't make those interpret. we don't make those commentaries authoritative we find those commentaries or study Bibles to be helpful tools in us making sense of what the text says. Mm-hmm. Because then we refer, we look at a passage in the New Testament, we look at and study the Old Testament to see how that's consistent with God's motive and mission all throughout the scriptures. Um, one for me I that have been has been really helpful for me for sermon prep and for everyday study has been the Lexham English Bible. And their translation, their uh, study Bible, which is the Faith Life Study Bible. So this is from from Logos, and you can get a free version of it. Put it on your phone, put it on your iPad, put it on your computer, and it's really really helpful. Because um, if you don't, especially if you don't want to have like a big, huge book that you put in your bag, I love hard copies of the Scripture and study Bibles. But this this mm-hmm. um, study Bible and translation are, is extremely helpful for me in my everyday life. Um, it's got, you can look at timelines, you can look at how words play, how many times this word is used with just a couple of clicks of, of a mouse or a couple of taps on your, on your phone. So that's, that's a resource that I always point my community group to when we're studying. Yeah. Yeah. You
1: mentioned this, but good Bible commentaries. Um, so the next time we do an extended sermon series on a single book of the Bible, grab a, grab a Bible commentary from pillar commentary or preach the word.
0: I gave Cole some alpha brain earlier. I don't (laughs) know what happened. I'm so
1: tongue tied right now. (laughs) He gave me a pre-workout earlier and like my tongue is like, my tongue is on crushes right now. I don't know what's going on.
0: (laughs) I took some, I'm doing just fine right now. Yeah, man, I don't don't know. Okay. Um, Any other resources, Luke, that are helpful for you?
2: Yeah, commentaries are great. Um, You know, the, the other thing is is there's the I think the is the Gospel Project.
0: Bible Project. The Bible
2: project. Sorry, yeah. The Bible project goes through and does a great job summarizing the books of the Bible and, and walking you through the content of mm-hmm. scripture. It's so it. good. Yeah, it's such a great thing. But if you're wanting to dig the here's the thing. Is if you want to like really look at and learn a little bit more about textual variants, there is that's a, it's a large step. There's not like an intermediate playground there to go. It's like if you go in, get ready to deal with some heavy, tough sledding stuff because it's going to be mm-hmm. it, it's it's a demanding work to think about those things. Yeah. So, um, not that a layman couldn't or shouldn't do it. They definitely should if you want to. But you're gonna need to prepare yourself to do some heavy reading and prep yeah. gird and gird up your loins. Yeah, yeah, because mm. you're not you're not you're you're delving into some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah,
0: it's not a, you can't just uh, skim over it and understand what if, what's being said.
2: Yeah, if you want something that's like devotional is gonna be really applicable for your you know daily walk, probably not gonna yeah. find it. Maybe <laughs> not. in <laughs> deciding yeah. w- whether or not that comma's in the right place yeah, or right.
0: not. <laughs> probably not gonna get up at six and start digging into that. No, <laughs> to edify your soul. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Not that things. it can't be, but just saying, it definitely it's probably, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's for me. Is just show me the amazing and, yeah. thing that we have in the scriptures.
2: And if you want to kind of watch a cool lecture on it, Daryl Bach uh, from DTS. If you just type in Daryl Bach into YouTube and look up some of his uh, talks on Greek manuscripts, um, Daniel Wallace. We were mm-hmm. talking about. There are other great New Testament scholars that are. Worth your time to listen mm-hmm. to uh, Craig, Craig Blomberg. I mentioned him. Mm-hmm. There's other, you know, a lot of really excellent scholars that you can find easily on YouTube and just listen to a lecture on. Yeah. by them.
0: Yeah, we we have so many good resources yeah. in 2020 that yeah. the people even and even 50 years ago would have killed to have. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. My last uh, resource is a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast, and it's amazing. It's my favorite podcast. I look forward to when it comes out every Sunday, but he'll get into for an hour, hour and twenty minutes, we'll get into textual variants. We'll get into here's how John is using Exodus in his gospel. Mm-hmm. Here's how here's the Exodus language that John uses in Revelation. Mm-hmm. So it's really good. So if you yeah, if you just want to listen to something and learn more about the Bible and see how amazing the scriptures are, that podcast is awesome. Well, church, uh, we we hope that. Uh, This conversation that the three of us have had has made you want to run to Scripture right now, Mm -hmm. makes you want to learn more about the Scriptures, makes you want to study the Scripture so that you get more of Jesus, so you become a person who looks more like Jesus and images Him in your home, in your church, and in your city. So whether you worship with Frontier Church or not, we hope this episode helps you worship local.
1: Amen.